Welcome to the Zulu Time podcast, a straight talking conversation between two watch enthusiasts about the world of military watches. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Zulu Time podcast with your host Dan from Timely Underscore Moments. So I hope you enjoyed last episode, which was episode 82, which was the summer roundup episode with Justin over at the Recon Recon, uh, Team Watch blog. Now, it was a particularly long episode. I like to think that I ranted a lot, which probably added for some comedic value. However, even with that satirical comedic value, there was obviously some truth into it. You know, there have been some recent releases that have been disappointing as of late. And I just kind of felt that maybe it was right or wrong, but I'm going to say right because I did it, um, to kind of call out some of the hype around those releases because I think it is a little bit ridiculous. Um, Either way, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Justin will be coming on uh, in a future episode where we're going to uh, basically talk about military watches um, in November and we're also going to get Alex from the Army in Time podcast to join us on that one as well so it'll be the first episode where we have three guests um, as it were for a long time the the first episode of where I did three speaking members of the podcast was actually the Vertex uh, episode back on like episode I think four or five um, so that's a long time ago so um, hopefully it will work better than that episode because um, we had some I had some problems with the editing afterwards because of the audio um, but we were using a completely different system at the time so uh, we should all be good but I'm looking forward to that because we're going to tie military watches and a bit about remembrance and what that means um, across Britain and also in terms of across the across the channel uh, channel uh, across the Atlantic in America. So uh, this episode is not really to do with military watches. I'm sure I'll try and spin that in there at some point. However, I don't doubt it. Um, but I've managed to con- coerce and convince Joe from Say Coded to come on to uh, the episode and talk everything about Seiko modding. So without further ado, Joe, how are you getting on? Good evening, Dan. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, happy to talk about modding all day long, so I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll have plenty to cover. Good. Um, can, before we start, I just want to confirm that this is your first ever podcast. It's not, to be fair. It's not? No, okay. I did. Um, I'm very good friends with uh, Jason at Watch Rolling, and yeah. um, a couple of weeks ago I did, um, yeah, I've done quite a few mods for him, mm-hmm. and it's something that we wanted to do for a while to talk about kind of the mods and how it's kind of brought us together as friends and and yeah so i, I was lucky enough to um have a sit down with him a few weeks cool. ago um yeah. but yeah i've been really keen to sit down with you um <laughs> one to talk about modding but two because um I, i'm pretty sure i'll spin military watches into it at, at some wonderful point well. i look forward to it i just wanted to check because every time i bring a new guest on for my podcast i always mm-hmm. check because i understand it is a little bit of a weird thing to dial on the internet uh, have a random webcam conversation with an absolute nerd on the other side <laughs> just to talk about watches so i always want to just check um basically if it's you know your the guest's first experience but i'm glad that this is normal for you and therefore we can bring you back in future episodes as well so that's all good sure. um before we get into the actual episode and we talk about watch modding what got you into it what got you into watches and all that kind of stuff obviously as you're well aware there is two traditions on the zulu time podcast one of which is a wrist check and one of which is a closing note so obviously being in the beginning of the episode what watch have you got on your wrist 
well, it's Sunday, and mm-hmm. I treat this um, like a religion. So every Sunday, I wear a Seiko Shogun. Nice. And um, the thing I like about Seiko Shogun is it it really punches above its weight. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite lightweight as well. And um, I came across it quite early in into the collecting journey. Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed was that Seiko's marketing material for any of the Shoguns is is not great, to be honest. They can't seem to capture it um you know in photos particularly well so i wanted to take some good photos i you know through hashtags ended up connecting with quite a few other um seiko shogun owners we have a little group on Mm -hmm. instagram now where we all kind of chat and um yeah we try and post on sundays under the hashtag shogun sunday um hashtag and yeah just try and show the beauty of the uh the shogun which i think is still really underrated even though it's been around uh, well over a decade now yeah it has been around at least since i started collecting i'm sure um it's up there with you know the other more fa- i guess famous is could we, do we, would we say famous stuff like the samurai and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you know the other models but you're right i don't believe that it's necessarily a model that seiko has pushed well for want of a better expression, mm-hmm. uh, may, might even just be the media that we consume. You know, you never know. Maybe JDM market, it mm-hmm. might be pushed a little bit bigger. I don't know. Um, I, I, I've never had any, any experience with a Seiko Shogun. I think um, from what I've seen, I would probably, I say this, I wear big watches because the Canford's a big watch, but I think I would probably struggle to pull it off because of my um, mortal size wrists is what I would say. Um, but, you know, it's one of those. It is, it is good that, you know, lesser known watches i think are getting some love um which Mm -hmm. is which is always good right um i am also wearing a seiko okay Okay. so obviously we messaged yeah yesterday talking about how we had to deconflict because i thought you're going to come on wearing your elliot brown uh and um I couldn't have two Elliot Browns again for the next episode. Not because I hate them or anything like that. I absolutely love them. And that's the problem is the fact that my wrist checks tend to just be Elliot Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am wearing a Seiko as well. I've got my Seiko 555th anniversary, the SRPK171, I want to say. Or so. 171K or what? I don't know. Whatever reference it is, guys, Google it. Um, and it's really cool because it's the one that they effectively 3D, uh, they, they effectively scanned it and then rebuilt it as if it was obviously the one from 1968. Uh, the only difference is, I believe, is the bracelet is a vintage inspired and it wasn't like a recreation of an original bracelet, mm-hmm. um, which actually, even though, so not that anyone can else can see this, because obviously the video doesn't go out and it's just the audio, but if you Google the watch, the bracelet is quite it's like a cuff, really. It's solid. Yeah. Like it's flexible, but it's it's also not at the same time. But you know mm-hmm. what? Even with that, it's really oddly and surprisingly comfortable. I've heard a lot of people go, oh, it catches hairs or it's not very comfortable. But it may be just my mortal size wrists. Um, but it has actually been a really uh, comfortable wear. Um, it's a great fun watch. Uh, it's my only modern Seiko, Joe. There really? you go. It surprises some people. See, my only modern one that I've ever had. Uh, and even then, it's d- dressed up to be a vintage Seiko. So there you go. Um, that's what I got on my wrist. From the from the side, which is an angle mm-hmm. I haven't seen in any of the marketing, it looks like yep. a Squalo. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. So mm. it's interesting that you bring that up. So the day I went to collect this, so I bought it directly from the Grand Seiko Boutique in London, mm-hmm. um, which also helped because I happened to know the sales rep 
through another watch company that he may or may not have left, which obviously clearly didn't leave. He basically worked at Bramont. Uh, I met him a few times at a few Bramont events and then he moved to Grand Seiko, uh, which really helped because it meant that I got some extra stuff when I bought this watch, which was nice, some like stickers and shit like that. But I wore the watch, obviously, when I was in London because I wore, I left the boutique wearing it because that's what you mm -hmm. do, right? And I walked into the Amiga boutique um, to kill some time. And it was the day that the Seamaster 70th anniversary watches were released. So, oh. you know, about the the ones with the kind of like the faded out dials, the yeah. new ones. And I walked in and I was wearing this um, and I just kind of wanted to see what dials look like in real life. And the assistant in there actually asked me if it was a squalet because yeah, yeah. of the case profile um mm -hmm. it's very 60s-esque isn't it it's very cool um yeah. but yeah i think it wears really well as well which is nice um i just wish that seiko sorted out their timing a little bit better on them to be honest that's like my only gripe with it um but you know what i hasn't got it hasn't got a misaligned bezel because it's just free spinning so bonus. there you go bonus <laughs> um right joe so before we get into your modern career and how you go about a modding a watch and all the kind mm -hmm. of joys of that, what got you into watches in general? Um, to be fair, I was into modding right at the start of when I got into mm -hmm. watches. So um, for years and years, I had a G-Shock Square and mm -hmm. I literally wore that for the best part of a decade. Yeah. Um, it's around somewhere, but it's the uh, 5600 MS. So it's the military spec one. Uh, which basically means it's got the reverse um, screen. Yeah. Love that watch, but I wasn't really into watches beyond that, um, partly because I, I felt like I couldn't afford something decent like an Amiga. Um, so I just kind of left it at that. And then I had a conversation with a friend and kind of got me onto some Seiko uh, references that I hadn't mm -hmm. heard of. Looked up the 013, which uh, I fell in love with straight away, yep. ordered one, then found that a lot of people are modding built my first mod and it snowballed from there mm -hmm. um down both avenues of mods and also um collecting vintage pieces mm -hmm. interesting pieces as well at the same time so i'm kind of both a modder and a collector yeah and i think they go hand in hand too yeah i think they they definitely do go hand in hand i'm not about to say i've ever modded a watch um the closest that i could say that i've ever modded a watch is in the aid aiding of a design via a company right you know where mm -hmm. we take a yeah. retail model and we slap a effectively slap a new design on the dial and on the case bank and make it a little bit more unique to what everyone else can buy if that classes as modding, then maybe there you go. I'll hold my hand up and say that I've helped mod a watch. But in terms of actually buying pieces in from different companies and different places to build a watch, I've absolutely never done it. Um, I can just about do a battery change and occasionally regulate um, the, um, the running of certain watches if I uh, can put my mind to it at, at, you know, at a time. But I kind of have to sit down and, and, and decide I'm going to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's cool that modding for you and collecting kind of started at the same time um in terms of your collection then would you say i mean i know only a couple of pieces in your collection but would you say that a lot of your watches are seiko derivative or japanese derivative um or do you have other watches that i'm not aware of that are in your collection yes i mean it, it definitely was um very early on in the collection was very much it's got seiko or kind of spin off from seiko pulsars and things but i am kind of branching out now um 
into other things. I've got Smiths. I've got yep. you've seen the Elliot Browns. Yep. I'm trying to broaden my horizons a little bit mm-hmm. because it's very easy to get you know to kind of letterbox yourself. But at the same time, the way that the mods and the collecting go hand in hand, I think is good, especially when most of the mods that I'm working on are Seikos. I'm modding Samurais. Yep. I'm modding um, you know, a lot of SKXs. And there are a lot of people who, like you said earlier, there are a lot of people who are modding. But I think mm-hmm. that there are also a lot of people who are modding Seikos or modding using Seiko movements who don't actually really care much for Seiko. Mm-hmm. Whereas I am a big Seiko fan, and I know a lot of the other modders that I kind of talk to on a day-to-day basis and associate with, they are too. They've got Marine Masters. They've got, yeah. and it's those kind of real standout milestone pieces like the Shogun, like the SKX, mm-hmm. that you know they're they're like almost benchmarks they're like the pillars that you you kind of draw inspiration from those things whereas you know there's a lot of mods around that are just downright clones now you've got nautilus Mm -hmm. mods and things and i think Mm -hmm. that a lot of the people building them um probably don't know what seiko sumo is no you know things like that so yeah it's nice to to go back to your roots and get some off-the-shelf models as well as um you know some that have been messed with yeah i think that's interesting actually because like I said, I see this from an outsider's point of view. And when I first started collecting watches and came across the modding community, like it was something that I steered away from, mainly because, like I said, I just didn't think I'd have the time or ability to kind of get around to doing it myself. Um, but thinking obviously, you know, that also, like you said, you know, there are some really good mods out there and some interesting ways to have something unique on your wrist at a more accessible you know uh price point for one expression but it's interesting that you pull out that maybe some modders out there don't care about seiko which is interesting because like i said the first time kind of like it was spun to me was this there's this community that like grabs seiko and they mod them because they're accessible pieces to be able to do it and like you said they almost throw away the fact that Seiko is a vertically integrated company, they've got all these, like you said, they've got these pillars of watchmaking and they've got these um, this heritage in watchmaking that maybe these modders aren't aware of, you know, necessary to the extent that they probably should. I mean, I love the fact that, I mean, I've got one on my desk behind me, you can't quite see it, but I've got one of the Seiko alarm clocks in the shape of the Athletics World timers, you know, the big yeah. clocks at the end of the finish line. I absolutely love that you know, Seiko has this history with sporting events and, you know, or, or racing and stuff like that, you know, look at the, the Seiko's uh, 61.39 speed timers, you know, obviously clearly a watch now that's quite close to, close to my heart, but quite close to my recent collecting because it's something that I picked up a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just a cool watch, you know. Yeah. And like said, you know, look at, you know, I went to the Grand Seiko boutique and got to see everything, you know, from all their different lines when I was there, I also explained, um, no, I'm a watch collector and I run this podcast and I'm a nerd and they were like, yeah, just go and have a look. You know, while we size your bracelet, go and have a look. And it was interesting to see that it's just the different levels within these companies, you know, everything from Seiko 5 to Prospects, Presage to Creedor to King Seiko. And I just think that a lot of Western kind of watch culture, for want of a better expression, is slowly leaning to remind people that there is this very ever omnipresent kind of you know entity that is still churning out watches in a vertically integrated company which like, arguably i would say is better than a lot of what the swiss manufacturers are putting out i agree uh, in on, on many fronts there and i think that 
they are. I think Grand Seiko. I mean, you talk about talk about it in recent times. They had the, <clears throat> what they would say is like the revival, mm. um, and it is relatively recent compared to all of their competitors. Really, yeah. when they really brought it back, and when they they lost the double logo was a big mm-hmm. kind of thing. Obviously, it's quite divisive. I think it was a good move, but that's definitely making people realize that they do a bit more than mm. a lot of people would say they were what i believe in america they call more watches yeah i've heard that and, a few times yeah and and, and you know in the, in the uk we had argos and yeah. you have argos watches <laughs> mm-hmm. and that was what i kind of i grew up and you know you, you did see you probably still can buy them a lot of the lower end seikos but people don't realize when i say to them you know primarily i'm a seiko collector they say oh mm. well, that's good because they're cheap and i say yeah. well some of them are. And some of them are. Not all of them. them. Yeah, yeah, not all of them. You know, I haven't. I I've not had the pleasure of a Grand Seiko yet. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you start getting into prospects, like it 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 bumps right up and yeah. uh, and and beyond. Yeah. So there's something for everyone. That's what I like about them. Yeah, I think, and and also, not only is there something for everyone across. You know, are you a diver? Are you a pilot? Mm-hmm. Are you I don't know a mountaineer, but the alpinist? Are you a racing car driver? All these things that you mm-hmm. could be, right? Not only have they got the ability to hit these lines, but even within each segment of a diver, there's a different diver for everyone's ability or everyone's environment, which you want to dive in. And then you've got limited additions on top. And mm-hmm. I just think, like you said, there's something for everyone within the offering of Seiko. I made a comment to Justin earlier this week. We were talking about Seiko and I can't remember why, but obviously we were talking about Seiko and we both agreed it'd be interesting to know if Seiko as an entity even know how many iterations they've put out. Because I doubt that they even know. Like look at the Seiko 5 range, which is obviously the predominantly the range that I've dabbled in through the military side of watches. Mm-hmm. You know, all of my um, Seikos have been Seiko 5s or Seiko 5 derivatives, be it, you know, from the sewer or the Dany factory, depending on which side they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at the, all the vintage posters where all the different colorways and dials came out. Like I'm telling you, I don't even think Seiko know exactly how many dial variants they've put out within that yeah. line alone, you know, let no alone way. pro specs or turtles or whatever and then you add on the fact that their movements as well like you can search seiko via the line be it you know pro specs five crude or you can search via movement be it 4r whatever you know and all that kind of stuff or you could search it by color you know for example it's mental i, I genuinely don't think anyone really wouldn't ever know how many seiko kind of versions have been released no i think that now it's actually simpler than ever it, yeah, yeah. i've seen it cause quite a lot of trouble online because things like interestingly you mentioned the mm-hmm. 6139 yeah. they were changing things like the chapter ring yeah. for specific markets and for specific yeah. um importers i believe yeah. in australia and thailand they had different colors mm. and then you, you know one will come up for sale the so-called experts will say that's fake that's a, that's a yeah. mod and then You'll see, I, I've seen, I can't remember the account, but you know, you'll see really obscure scans that they've taken mm. years to find of a, you know, a scrap in a catalog. Um, yeah. And it shows the the change in the chapter ring. And then suddenly yeah. it's something they've been saying all this time is is proven. But yeah. it does cause a lot of uh, a lot of trouble mm. on the old um, watch forums and yeah. things. Because I think back in the day they were um, freestyling. 
yeah, yeah exactly but i mean also people forget the history and again like again i'm probably teaching you to suck eggs for want of a better expression but guys seiko in the 60s at least 60s and 70s i don't know when they were kind of re-merged or whatever but effectively there was a period guys where seiko split itself across two locations and they were headed up differently and they basically competed against each other hence why you've got different movements and different iterations on very similar watches and i think it bred a really healthy competition and like you said i think this is just aided to effectively i don't know could you know i'm guessing without doing research this makes me come across as very ignorant because i own one but you know i'm guessing you could buy a 6139 from the sewer factory and you could probably buy one from the daily factory and they'd have completely different like mm. minute differences that would mean you know somewhere down the line say someone bought one and it came from one factory they've sent it in circuit to get serviced maybe they pulled the wrong part out and they've serviced it with a sewer internal bezel for Possibly. example you know because at the end of the day they're the same watches all the parts would have still fit it's just the aesthetic differences are still there you know um but yeah and i do find it interesting um in terms of you now with modding watches so a question i've got is Firstly, what was the first mod you ever did? Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, as a modder, is there a particular model or movement within the Seiko's line that you actually really enjoy working on compared to others? Uh, it's a good question. So the first mod that I built was basically uh, a derivative of, uh, it was based around a turtle, mm -hmm. um, but I moved the crown position to three o'clock. I wanted to go for, what was more of a kind of sea dweller vibe and mm -hmm. a lot of mods do tend to kind of uh, from you know mods that i've built myself mods that have come in you know requests from customers they do echo other brands apart from seiko as well which i think yeah. is is fine um to be fair as long as people know that you know a bit about seiko and mm -hmm. also I, I try and especially for mods for myself to try and keep a bit of seiko in there yeah. even if i'm going for you know that kind of so that mod, for example, had the um, classic Sea Dweller bezel with the you know the markings all the way around the minute mm -hmm. markings. Um, but yeah, you know, I wanted the turtle dial. I wanted the mm -hmm. SKX style hands, mm -hmm. and yeah, that that was my. I, I wore that uh, kind of religiously until I built the next one, and and went from there really. Mm -hmm. And in terms of movements, uh, that you know, what I was basically getting at is. Are there particular watches and iterations that lend themselves better to mod because of mm -hmm. the e effectively the ease of working on them? You know what I mean? Because I'm a guessing that modding a chronograph is more difficult than modding a three-hand mm -hmm. dive watch with a date. Well, the whole Sago modding scene is built around mm -hmm. the SKX007. Yeah. That that's mm -hmm. the foundation. If you were to plot it on one of mm -hmm. these, um, you know, if you do a presentation, you'd have that in a circle in the middle. Yeah. Um span off from there if you got the zero one three and any mm -hmm. Seiko fives so i'd say anything that's got a, um, a four or three five seven s two six or you know the three six mm -hmm. uh they're always on on that kind of similar platform so samurai's turtles mm -hmm. but then beyond that now obviously you've got the nh35 stuff uh which mm -hmm. it, it's all kind of interchangeable yeah. and a lot of people want NH35s dropped into SKXs, so they get the yeah. hack in the hand winding. Yeah. And then um recently, it was only a, a couple of years ago, they dropped the NH7071 and 72, which are um skeleton versions of 
the NH35, but we've no, I never knew that. Really cool movements. They're almost identical in footprint, so you can swap in if you wanted a skeleton dial SKX007, mm-hmm. you can just put one of those in. I like them. Um, you know, I've seen some people who don't as well. What they basically did was um, cut out all the bridges and things as yep. much as they could, but it is still fundamentally the balance wheels in the same place. Everything's in the the bridge is in the same place. The barrels are all in the same place, mm-hmm. but they look quite cool. NH72 is my personal favorite because it's um, it's like a rhodium effect on mm-hmm. the on the actual metal. Um, so that that's kind of opened up, a, you know, a whole new line of kind of mods that mm-hmm. you know are the, the skeleton style and. For a lot of people, especially the uninitiated, a skeleton watch looks like a really expensive thing. And yeah. it's nice to sit and watch a balance move all day from the front of the watch. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of taking as much as I enjoy taking my watch off and showing people the case back and display. Um, yeah. Sometimes I can understand the appeal to looking at it through the front of the watch. Mm-hmm. Um, because fundamentally, like I said, it's for my job, um, Joe's, you know, you would have heard from, from justin and others or you know just through my my page obviously you know i had a very different career to you um and you know i always use the um the story of going into a briefing a sensitive briefing and being told to take off my watch because you know weren't allowed to have um walk pets what calls per personal electronic devices in there and i was like ah, <laughs> i'm not taking this off dickhead and they're like why not like this is the rules you got to take your watch off i was like no the rules are you take it off if it's electronic this is not an electronic watch uh and the way i showed them was by taking it off my wrist to show them the fact that it was a mechanical watch you know and it was greeted with a oh that's pretty cool actually you know mm-hmm. what i mean as a response and i do think you know when you can show a movement working it's just really cool, right? You know what I mean? And it becomes something that I think it then kind of like you go away from it just being something that tells the time. I think it goes away into something that actually kind of captures a bit of imagination there because you kind of go, right, that's really cool. How does this work? You know, um, clearly I would say that for a military person like myself, maybe a skeleton dial is probably not the one because probably would not aid in the, being the most legible sure. watch. However, I can definitely understand the appeal to watching a movement work because I just find it fascinating. Just like you said, watching the balance go, watching the bridges and, you know, and the barrels moving around as well as the hands, you know, just watching a mechanical watch work is always pretty cool. Um, yeah, you know, I can, I can understand it. I think personally, it takes it away from Seiko, but for me, one of the best skeleton, and I'm inverting, quoting it, guys, um, dials, um in recent years in my opinion is the apollo 8 speedmaster mm-hmm. dark side of the moon where they semi skeletonized the, yeah. the, the the dial to see elements of the watch through and i just think that was really done well um maybe if you could make me a uh apollo 8 <laughs> um Take out, like we'll all be down for it, and I'd have a skeleton dart watch. But you know what I mean. Like I just mm-hmm. think that like, I think certain things done well definitely are really cool. Yeah, I think the the skeleton dials, you know, at the lower end, they mm. the with the purists, they don't they mm. prefer a watch with a movement that's really been designed to be skeletonized from the ground mm-hmm. up. And there are some out there uh, which I I still really like that I think like the Rado Captain Cup skeleton yeah. dial, where mm. it's you know it's basically the kind of standard movement but then they've shaved it away a little bit yeah. so actually it's not as attractive as 
It could be. Yeah. Is it could be, but then you've got to look at price points and the ones that they're all comparing to are the Royal Oak with the skeleton, mm-hmm. like, you know, skeleton movements and yeah. um you know it's a whole different whole different it's not, yeah it's <laughs> definitely not the, not the same watch game and watch no. league is it at all you know um not that i'm ever going to own one of those either you know but so, again i can appreciate <laughs> it from a distance you know it's not something that i'd wear and have in my own collection because i don't believe it would fit looking at what i have in my collection mm-hmm. but i can definitely appreciate that kind of stuff i'm just gonna actually that's pretty cool um so yeah um in terms of non like so in terms of I was about to say non-modded watches and but like in terms of yeah so yeah actually we'll ask this so in terms of non-modded Seikos then in terms for you what would be your favorite ones like the ones that or ones that maybe people should look into other than the Shogun I mean because there's so as I said earlier there's so many variants of Seikos out there that people might not know Mm -hmm. the 013 um Mm -hmm is i i've been quoted to say this many many times um like a broken record but i i've i've said um and i, I can back this up that he's one of the best watches ever okay and that that is to me categorically fact um others may disagree but i think that you'll find its popularity online and mm-hmm. some of the people that i see you who've got them alongside some pretty tasty watches and they're still posting yeah they're zero one three because it can do anything. I mean, it is a 200 meter diver. It's an mm-hmm. SKX. But then at the same time, I think it was definitely overshadowed by the 007 when they were still making it. Yeah. And then now it's kind of, they're selling for more for a start. Mm-hmm. They sell for more money. So I think that proves a little bit that people are starting to kind of really desire them. I mean, um, did you ever think you'd see them selling for the price <laughs> they are going for now? No, but I do have yeah. more than one. <laughs> So I'm not complaining, um, but they're not for sale. Um, I'm just like a magpie for for a bargain. So mm-hmm. if it's something that I like and another one comes mm-hmm. up, I'll just buy it and then worry about the what where I actually needed it. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's that that is the affliction of being a collector. There, that's right how it there. goes. But yeah. then, yeah, I think it's it's one of those watches where you put it on a suede, you put it on a NATO, mm-hmm. you put it on a Jubilee, you put it on an Oyster. It can wear many frocks. I've worn mine with a shirt. I've worn mine on the beach, and it covers all bases. And it yeah. probably is. It, you know, people say it a lot, but I think it is a, a contender for that one watch collection because yeah. it is. It's chunky. It's thick enough that it can have some presence, but because it's like a thirty-eight mil, yeah, it's not um, you know obnoxious if you wanted no. to smarten it up with a, yeah, a yeah. strap or something as well. So I uh, think that's and, definitely up there. Yeah, and they're also bulletproof. Yes, you know, easily um, fixable too. Yeah, just in case. (laughs) What? What? Um. So I mean, clearly you regulate your your mods. Um, Mm -hmm. but an out the box, obviously, because it's Seiko Seven S Two Six. Is it C's Mm -hmm. or B's in those? Anyway, whichever one it is. Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of timing? Like you know, because I know there are guys out there. Um, you know, who who kind of get down to like the second, and they like to know the, the running rates of watches. But like, what kind of timing can you get on one of those movements if you really do sit down and dial it in? You know, if it's if it's freshly serviced and or yeah. a new movement. So I don't know if you know, but if you send an SKX 007 in for a factory service, they, they just, just pull it out and for it. Yeah. Um. The the brand new movements. These days, to be fair, I've had quite quite good luck with them. They've been running really well, but you know, failing that, you can regulate them quite mm. easily. 
um, you can get them to zero, no problem. The mm-hmm. difference I found between, say, a 7S and, I guess, uh, you know, a, a, a officially certified chronometer mm-hmm. movement is the positional variation. Yeah. So you can expect that, you know, easily to a 10 second deviation between, you know, crown right and crown down uh, mm-hmm. on the time grapher, which you're not going to get as much of no. with one of these, you know, fancy Swiss movements. And that is the difference. But what I tend to do, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm all self-taught on, on what I do. Mm-hmm. So I wear a watch for a few days at least work out you know plot the timing and work out how many days it's running uh you know sorry how many seconds it's running ever slow or fast mm-hmm. then i try and find that position on the time grapher that so if i found it was plus 10 and i put it on the time grapher it's showing plus five i'll move it rotate it around until it's showing that plus 10 in theory that's kind of what i would look at as my position for mm-hmm. my daily wear then i would change that plus 10 to you know plus one or plus zero and then in theory I've regulated the plus 10 down and the other positions don't necessarily matter because I've very rarely got a watch, say, dial down or, yeah. uh, you know, crown up or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's just my, makes sense. the way I do it. Yeah, makes sense. Might have to send you my Seiko. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like I said, my, my, like I said, I get that it's deviance, but I, and I am one of those people who kind of like, I, I, I just enjoy it, bro. Like the idea of getting a watch as close as you can, even though I get it, like I've got more accurate watches for the price point, but it's just one of those. I'm just, I enjoy it. Um, but like you said, the, the good thing is, is that these movements are, you know, effectively serviceable, um, mm-hmm. bulletproof, and you can do stuff with them. Um, so yeah, you know, and I think that's the point where in the last episode, me and Justin may have had a bit of a slight rant about the blank pan swatch 50 fathoms <laughs> thing that was released and looking at actually, you know, what can you get um, for that money that can, can, you know, that can last you a lifetime effectively, you know, and be serviceable. You know what I mean? Like it's absolutely ridiculous that that relief um and I'm clearly very passionate about it because it's annoyed me. But like, I look at what you provide. I look at what, you know, even if someone didn't want to mod a Seiko, what Seiko could provide, or as an, as an example, or, you know, other companies, Elliot Brown, for example, um, that you could get for the price of something that will in 10, maybe even less years, depending on how hard you wear it, end up in landfill. For sure. I've got a System 51 watch and that's the thing that, I like it. It's not. Uh, it's not the the new one. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know. It was the first one actually. It's called the System yeah. Blue, and I, I like the watch. But it was seventy quid on eBay. And yeah, that's the right price for it. Yeah. And right now it runs, and one day it'll be a paperweight. And mm-hmm. the they have like a plastic rotor, mm-hmm. which doesn't really look like a normal rotor. No, it's like normal like what you'd find on a Seiko or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a full plastic disc, and mine's cracked. Um, the plastic disc behind the clear case back so I know I, I can't replace that because yeah. the case back glued on so it's already yeah. broken in a way it still works but you know it's already got something where if I've got a broken watch my instinct because of the tools I've got because of the experience I've got <laughs> try it. and fix it yeah I'm not a <laughs> yeah. watchmaker but particularly component at a component mm. level like a bezel of crystal with you know a mm. crown I'll, I'll dive straight in and uh, that's just a watch that i know is just on a down it's already started breaking it's on a downhill mm-hmm. spiral really yeah would you would you replace it i 
I, you know what? It's at the back of the draw, to be fair. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get a lot of time. No, um, no, no. It was something fun. It was back when I, I was talking to a friend recently this, this week. Um, I think that this happens to a lot of people when you start collecting. Mm. You, obviously, most people start at, not necessarily all the same place on cheat watches, but you know, you start at a lower end. Mm. And I think that, that I definitely did. And you end up buying loads and loads and loads of watches. And then as your watches get nicer, essentially, yeah. you wear them more. And I yeah. think that with, with the cheap watches, they're the ones that I'm more in, I was more inclined to to wear a different watch every day. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I've got the Holton, uh, which mm-hmm. you've seen, the Holton Automatic, which I absolutely love. And yeah. I, didn't, I didn't take it off for like uh, eight days, which is like yeah. unprecedented for me, but it's because I liked it so much. And the same with the Shogun. I, I, I'd yeah. wear that watch forever i really would um but you know it is a a fair step up that when i got my shogun it was um a big step up for me in terms mm-hmm. of the, you know the, the level that it, with my collection so mm-hmm. it's kind of understandable but then you look at the old pieces like the little 70 pound swatch and others and um they just don't get much time even though i quite like um you know the old vintage yeah bangers uh, that they, mm-hmm. they just just don't find myself reaching for them as much anymore yeah, no, I I understand what you what you're getting at. You know, it's interesting to see, like I said, you know, also people's tastes change, don't they, as your collecting journey goes on, right? You know, I think that also has a factor into it. But I think in terms of for this system fifty one in general, I think it does have a place in horological history. You know, it was a fully mechanical machine built movement. You know, and I think that's one screw. You know, I think it's a phenomenal bit of engineering and the fact that we can, human beings can produce it for the price it's being produced at mm-hmm. is impressive. The fact that we're throwing it into a, a case now that denotes it to be, what, 300, 340 quid, I think it is. It is because I wrote a post about it and people kicked off. So I wrote a post, you may have seen it. Um, <laughs> it last night, guys, I at the time of recording, but I also have to caveat this because obviously this episode will go out afterwards. But at the time of recording, guys, last night I bought a Amiga uh, 30T2, uh, which is effectively the watch that was issued to the Royal Air Force at the beginning of World War II. Yes, I know it's like 80 years old, but my point being is, I brought a serviceable, very nice watch by a very reputable, cool company for less than a swatch. Precisely. That I think that that says it all, really. You know, and then it it's also I mean, what year was it? Remind me. Thirty-nine. So it's still going. It's, yes. It's still, you know, whilst it might have some patina on it, it's still mm-hmm. largely the same watch it was yeah. when it was brought out and that's that that's the biggest gripe i have with the with the swatches that they put it in this bio ocean mm-hmm. plastic case yeah. and then it's not serviceable so yeah. people will probably throw them in the sea when yeah. they're done with them so which is um, ironic given the fact that blank pan have pushed this whole clean the oceans with everyone else you know what i mean it's just mm-hmm. to me i think the the marketing around the release i think the way that they've done the release and i think the actual product it's all just a little bit disingenuous you know what i mean uh, that's just my opinion it is an opinion guys and people can hang me for it but it's a hill that i'm willing to die on because i just think to be honest i'm just gonna call it out i just think it's fucking bollocks you know um <laughs> go back to episode 82 listen to my rant again and i have not changed in in one episode's uh release um that's my opinion on it um moving back to Sega modding joe 
if I come to you now for a as a as a client and go right, I would like to buy a Seiko mod from you. Mm-hmm. What is your process, and how do we go about creating whatever I have come up with in my mind? Um, I keep it fairly simple. I mm-hmm. tend to we we chat on WhatsApp or Instagram, yeah. mm-hmm. and we just kind of go through options. Really, I normally start with either if they've got a kind of vibe that they want to go for a look they want to yep. go for then that's always a good starting point um for me mm-hmm. if they haven't we can go something simple like a dial color and go mm-hmm. from there and then i'll normally keep a record of everything in a spreadsheet um because it does sometimes conversations that i've yep. had customers where we've talked about a watch for six months uh yep. because they, they wanted to get it right you know something that you're going to wear every day mm-hmm. and yeah we you know we shop around there's so many suppliers of mod parts. Yeah. There's so many watches we can start with. There's so many parts we can start with. So many movements. Um. Mm. That you know it's important to get it right. And and yeah, it's literally just, it's a conversation, but it also means that I get to know them. They get to know me. And yeah. most of the people that, especially the ones that have had one or two mods from me at least, um, mm-hmm. some have had four or five. You know they become become friends. Um, definitely yeah. what watch fan friends for sure. And you know we'll end up just sharing links on a, you know, Sunday night of some random watch that we've seen, even though that yep. we're not currently working on a mod. So yeah, I think a conversation is the answer to that. Yeah. That, that could be very long, but mm-hmm. it's worth it in the end. Oh, definitely. And I think, like I said, it, it, people get invested then, don't they? You know, like this, uh, this is potentially an idea um, that is their own. You know, like you said, something that they can wear forever or daily. It's something that they've put their time and effort in, and they, like you said, you guys work together to 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 make it. And I think, like you said, the more time you put into it, the better effectively the product, the final product mm-hmm. for both you as the maker, because uh, you're putting your name to this, aren't you? At the end of the day, like you're putting you on into this, and then the person is putting their personality into it as well by saying, "This is what I want." I think, like I said, it, it's really good that you can you know have those conversations build this watch and then have a continued uh relationship with these people where they can potentially come back you know uh in terms of the actual mods themselves then roughly um just so so people are aware like say it's a completely brand new watch as it were for want of a better expression so they're getting a full watch from you it's not just a they want a bezel change but they're doing a full watch you know so it's the movement it's a new case it's a dial mm-hmm hands everything roughly how long minus your conversation so you've had the conversation you know mm-hmm. you know your brief what you're going to build uh and then how long would it take and then the rough money that it would cost mm-hmm. someone potentially to to have something like that done once we're kind of set on what we're mm-hmm. going with and providing no parts are getting custom made mm-hmm. which does happen custom dials take yep. ages notoriously yeah um, as you probably know I um, definitely know how long a custom dial takes. And I tell you what, it is, you know what, I, what I like, sorry to stop you there very, right. very quickly, but like what I like, and it's probably something that you were probably interested to talk about anyway, but like, I like seeing something go from a digital render and then seeing the parts drop in. But I tell you what, like the best part of the process for me when making a special project is the render. And then there's fucking nothing because like the factories <laughs> and the manufacturers are doing their bit, which I call magic in between because I'm mm-hmm. ignorant to that bit. And then the best bit, bro, is when I get sent a photo of a random dial in the dial, you know, a holders or in like a dial that's been put on a desk on its own. Because really? then I know 
it's real. And then I also know selfishly that it's not going to be much longer before it's put into a watch and I get to wear it, you know, but it takes out six. It takes about in my experience of that process with those companies, it's Mm -hmm. about six months, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on DARS. But I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong with, with your timeline on that. So if let's include then a custom DAR, uh, hypothetical watch can take months, but Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, we're not going with custom dials. We're just going with interesting dials, the right color that they wanted. So normally, yeah. I'd say parts take a week or two to land, depending on where they yeah. were ordered from. And then I normally spend a week kind of fettling, mm-hmm. getting it right, testing, building. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say once we're kind of set, maybe around a month. And then in terms of cost, I mean, I do sometimes cater for people on the lower lower end of the budget mm-hmm. um i do try and encourage people not to limit themselves by budget and ra- i would rather them you know people are impatient that's the consumer kind of nature that we're in yeah i say to them wait a little bit longer if you throw an extra 50 quid at this you know we're going to have a much better case we're going to have a much better mm-hmm. bezel action yeah but saying that um you know I- i'm knocking out watches from kind of 250 upwards, mm-hmm. upwards um yeah. if you kind of no hold barred kind of thing you'll be looking mm-hmm. at around five five fifty yeah that'll get you something on the kind of 200 meter platform um mm-hmm. so 007 kind of yep. base or samurai turtle kind of base they are more expensive but they are worth it because yeah. you're getting that that architecture um yeah. which which is good for you know in most of the most of the time 200 meters uh water resistance I mm-hmm. test down to 60. I haven't got one of these um, crazy machines, but you know, if I know if it passes at 60 and it's got the hardware to back it up at 200, then they can go and take it to, you mm-hmm. know, get them tested on the high street with a, a dry tester and they'll fly through. So yeah, I'd say that the most expensive things I've ever really worked on have run up about 600 pound, but mm-hmm. that's, that's all the increase there is all in parts because yeah. my, my time is, is the same either way, really. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, if people want to upgrade the parts, mm-hmm. some cases on their own are 70, 80 quid. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I think the most expensive dial I've used was about 120 pounds on its own. Mm-hmm. There are more expensive dials. I've seen yeah. people using their Marine Master dials. They tend to mm-hmm. knock around about 200 pounds. So then you're knocking on the price of a whole Seiko 5, but yeah, yeah. it's worth it for the right build. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, customers had had a watch from you now you know that's been worn uh, and loved and you know appreciated for however long how have you had what i'm getting at now is have firstly clearly you have the ability to service it forever and have mm-hmm. that relationship with them and all that kind of stuff but have you had guys for example as well not as just a repeat as a service but have you had guys come back to you and say really love the mod my taste have ch- changed slightly can you upgrade my handset as well as a service you know is that also is that also something that you would offer you know potentially if guys ask for as an example yes loads and loads of times that's happened um more times than i actually kind of even thought that it would Mm -hmm. but it it really has because they look at it every day and sometimes they just get bored of certain things Mm -hmm. or i've had some where they've damaged them and that's the beauty of it really i'll just you know swap out a bezel swap out a crystal um and we'll go again but there's always little tweaks and things things that we yeah. can do i i don't tend to offer um even you know some of the kind of 
uh, I've done like mill sub style mods and I did those in, in batches. Yeah. And even those, they weren't ready, like off the shelf, you know, ready to ship kind of thing. It was a case of, you know, let me know if you want one. You can tweak how much patina mm-hmm. I do on them, what I do, whether I bleach the bezel or not, whether I bake yeah. the dial. I do not tend to be the kind of page that has, uh, you know, off the shelf things ready to go flying out. Everything I do tends to be mm-hmm. tailored in one way or another. Yeah. To a custom and, uh, and built. And for me, event. yeah, for me, those uh, Milsub watches, by the way, your mods on those Milsub watches. I mean, not, obviously, I've never handled any one of one of your watches in person um but from the images that i've seen and from the comments i've seen on your profile i think for me those are the coolest mods that you've got going because clearly being a military watch Mm -hmm. aficionado for me that is just it just speaks to me i'm never going to be able to buy a rolex mills up despite the fact that i like to think that i would you know i mean it's one of those but like even if I could, the other side of it is, is would I? Because fundamentally, like, again, servicing one of those fuckers to actually go off and do cool shit with, is it worth it when actually you could just have a really decent mod of it and know actually it's serviceable forever? I'm not wearing a house on my wrist when I'm going off doing some adventurous shit. You know what I mean? And also, it sounds really bad. You're probably not going to get targeted for it to be, you know, of theft either. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, it's one of those, you know. But for me, I think your Millsub um mods are amazing thank you well i mean that just something that that reminded me of what you said there um i saw a post not long ago where it was i think it was 100 grand's worth of mill sub mm-hmm. um it came with an 11 grand invoice from rolex for its last service oh. and the thing is they don't that you can send it into them but there's like a yeah. minimum i believe where it's like a couple of grand just for them to have a look at it and that's non-refundable <laughs> And then beyond that point, they do what they want. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, you, there's no like, oh, can you just do this? No. And do but they do what they want and they bill you afterwards. And, yeah. And they take so as I, long as they want. Yeah. So I, um, I had, a, it's not Rolex. This is mm-hmm. a story I've said a few times over the podcast and obviously with people privately across the watch fam. So, um, my father's Amiga Chronostop from 1969, right? Uh, he flooded it when he fell into a swimming pool in Hong Kong. Okay, that is the story. Um, It was given to me as a broken watch, effectively, and it needed a service. What did I do? Because I was earlier in my watch collecting career, uh, career, my watch collecting journey, um, and I just typed an Amiga service and sent, I fired off, mate, loads of emails, right? And I put in a very specific thing about what I wanted for the watch. I was, was basically, I want it to be cleaned and serviced, but I want minimum replaced because obviously this is my dad's watch, right? This is mm-hmm. something from, you know, that's been handed down. Amiga in UK quoted me two and a half grand to basically give me a brand new watch. Like the, everything that they were going to replace on it was pretty much everything. I don't even, I think I literally was only going to get the dial and the case back. And you're like, that's not my dad's watch, you know? And I think that's absolutely mental, isn't it? Like all these big houses, I mean, admittedly, that watch is very old and I get it. You know, they don't have the parts, you know, the watchmakers might not have the expertise on those particular movements, you know, but to still be quoted two and a half grand to effectively destroy my dad's watch overnight and then get sent something completely not that watch Mm -hmm. is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? So like the fact that, you know, people are sending mill subs into Rolex to basically, like you said, have a effectively like i said you, you know just a non-refundable couple of grand down the toilet just for them to open your package alone is absolutely mental isn't it and then like i said they're going to send you back whatever they want because 
they want that watch to go back out looking mm-hmm. for one of them especially gleaming and i get that you know and some people would want a new watch every time they get them serviced hence why you know when rolexes in the 80s were serviced they automatically got sent with a service dial back to them you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's it's mental isn't it you know um i would not want to send a rolex mill sub into rolex pay 11 grand and get not a mill sub back like that's that's not that's not the game we played no, I think that they're, they're a bit better now with the heritage stuff, mm. but but in in return, you pay for it. And I've heard a few anecdotes from ADs and stuff that I know where that they've sent in, um, I, I don't know my Rolex references, but, you know, an original sub, um, yeah. the OG, you know, 50s one. Uh, six, six, 60, I'm going to guess, I think it's like 65, 53, I think Something it is. Like that. Yeah, yeah. And they've spent like a year mixing loom to match with the what's on the dial Uh, and they'll do you know obviously they'll charge for the privilege but Mm -hmm. they will take their sweet time mixing up paints mixing up looms um Mm -hmm. so in in a way that's good because obviously that shows that they're trying to like you know restore it rather than replace it but at the same time i think that was a 36 grand bill (laughs) so (laughs) a little bit about me is like do owners of these watches even care at this point? You know, you're mm-hmm. wearing a Rolex that is worth a house, right? Because it is, mm-hmm. you know, you clearly potentially, not obviously everyone, because obviously some people will have these things from being literally being handed down because we may or may not be able to confirm that a particular service person didn't hand it back in the 80s, back into stores when he <laughs> left the army, because that definitely happened. You know, we know that happened, you know, because that's why there's so many of these mill subs out there. But like let's stereotype these people who own these watches now the majority of them probably do have exposed disposable cash enough to have them serviced at this point do they even care you know what i mean i don't know i don't i know that i don't have that level of money to spend on a watch let alone to spend on a service of a watch you know and it's interesting isn't it to see the mindset and what people are willing to do to the to these old vintage watches to keep them going um did you watch that video on hudinki and it was it followed a tudor submariner that had been effectively shot off a bloke's wrist in vietnam i'll stick it into the show notes but i'm going to send it to you straight away after we finish this episode because it's you'll enjoy it and it's all about again how tudor basically rebuilt this bloke's watch the story goes he was a platoon commander in the vietnam war and he got shot and he took mm-hmm. took a ricochet off his submariner and it bent the lugs in the case um and it effectively saved his wrist because it was just probably just taking his hand off right mm-hmm. the medics come along and he's taken the watch off and he's put it into his top pocket and then he's administered first aid the platoon commander never saw the medic again and then the medic found the watch after the war like sorting it through his house and was like right i'm going to try and find this bloke and reconnect him and stuff tudor obviously and hidenki had found out about this story because of the joyous social media and then obviously this bloke got a free watch service because they rebuilt it but it was right down to the point where they got new vices and jigs to basically bend this 50 year old case back into shape but they didn't want to you know refinish the metal because they wanted to show you where the round hit the lug and stuff like that it's a very good episode Amazing. It's like 11 minutes long i'll send it to you because it is interesting when we talk about servicing and what you can do to a watch mm-hmm. you know and what you can do to a watch to bring it back you know so well, yeah. i believe yeah that a lot of it's the the letter that you get from rolex is mm-hmm. worth 
more than the actual really so people are i should rephrase that really a lot of people are sending these heritage pieces in because Mm -hmm. when it comes back it comes with a letter that says this is a legit watch we've had a look at it everything's legit it's not some sort of franken watch yeah those that watch that letter then can go to auction yeah with some peace of mind and Mm -hmm. it'll sell for a higher price and you know, ultimately, they have become auction pieces. Yeah. You see it every week, don't you? You a new record gets set, and yeah, um, a new collection gets unearthed that, that, like, thought that the watches were lost or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I saw one earlier this week, and it was funny because I sent it to AJ, um, who you would have heard mm-hmm. of at least in my, in my podcast, and we were laughing about it. Firstly, we said, "How many Daytonas did Paul Newman actually have?" Because it's yet another one that's been <laughs> sold. But like, I think it went the final price, not including the auctions, you know, tax on top of it, mm-hmm. for about selling tax, effectively on top of it, was eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a fucking wow. Daytona, and you're like. <laughs> <laughs> these were literally given out for free to sweeten the deal for someone to buy a Rolex, uh, some Mariner back in the in, in the seventies. You know, it's absolutely mental, and it is just because people want it because Paul Newman may or may not have worn it mm-hmm. once. You know, um, true, mental, absolutely mental. We've clearly gone to a side lane away from Seiko <laughs> modding, and we've just gone down this rabbit hole of vintage watches and all of that kind of stuff, which I'm here for. Um, but yeah, anyway, going back to the original point, absolutely love your um your your mill sub. Mm-hmm. Um, mods and um, I just think they're really cool I didn't realise that you went through such a, a level of process where the client for want of expression can turn around and say I want the dial bleached I want my uh, mm-hmm. I want uh, sorry, I want my bezels bleached I want my dials baked I want this level of patina on them I thought that you effectively made them to the standard that you wanted across each batch where you went right this batch is going to be more patinaed and it, whoever wants them can have this level as a standard or they can have this level because i've decided to build a uh you know a, a var- variance of milsub um mods no i mean part of that conversation that i mentioned earlier is kind of working out uh, particularly bezels are a great example because they when i buy them in they're the aluminium bezels so they're mm-hmm. kind of correct for, for the look i'm going for yeah the paint on them is you know it's jet black with yeah. you know, kind of silver poking through within the numerals and if you leave the bleach on long enough, they will pretty much ghost. go all the way to to aluminium and go full mm-hmm. ghost. And then there's everything in the middle. So mm-hmm. trying to gauge with each person how far mm-hmm. they want it. Um, you know, I built one for Jason at Watch Rolling, yeah. and he said literally, like, I want it white. So yeah. I left it in, you know, in the bleach for a while. Uh, yeah. And then other people, you know, they just want it taken down a touch. If you leave it on for a few minutes, you'll get like a nice matte black kind of look will take off the kind of lacquer but it won't take off mm-hmm. the color and then you can keep going so yeah it's just kind of mm-hmm. I, I tend to show photos of like different ones i've done in the past to the you know the customer and say yep. like you know, which one do you feel or if i've kind of done a batch of five and each one is yep. different i said like you know, choose one uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah first come first served yeah let me know which one you want mm-hmm. and some of them are late like, look beat up and some of them just look a little bit faded and, and yeah it's it's cool to to see that people's different tastes Mm-hmm. In uh, in t- it, it, now this is coming at it now from a military point because obviously clearly mm-hmm. mill subs have excited me. But have you found now as a modder where there's certain trends within different elements of the watch community? So mm-hmm. obviously with I weekly my podcast focuses on military watches. So mm-hmm. you know has there been a trend, for example, where 
because mil-spec watches, mil-spec divers, you know, be that Rolex ones or Tudor ones are the top ones that always, mm-hmm. you know, get spoken about, where this trend has leaked into the modern community and therefore you've had to build more. You know what I mean? Have you ever tracked that where you've gone, well, actually... 100%. Is there a trend? Is there a trend where you sit there and kind of go trying to, you know, do you ever try and jump the gun where you look at trends that could be emerging where you kind of say, right, actually, this might be the next thing within the Soaking Mod community. I need to start, you know, looking at this Mm -hmm. for future. Or are you very reactive to the rest of, you know, what people want and desire? And you just, you know, clearly you're happy to build anything. But like Mm -hmm. what I'm getting at is, is there a is there a level of preparedness where you as an interested collector modder and this is kind of like you know your business do you look and try and get prepared for an incoming storm for one of a better expression yes and no so i i do if i have a an, kind of inkling on something or an idea or even just a possibility of a certain mm-hmm. kind of road that we can go down a certain flavor of watch then i'll kind of do a bit of research and I'm always looking between all the parts sites to see what their latest yeah. products are, what their latest bezels are and things. And then, mm. you know, I've got, um, I wouldn't say an absolute photographic memory, but I've got a pretty good visual memory on things. And I just absorb this information yeah. and somebody comes to me and they say, actually, I, I want this like really obscure kind of look. Mm-hmm. And I'll know normally exactly where to find the part or yeah. who can make it. But then at the same time, um, I could probably, work harder at that in all honesty but this is just it's something that i do kind of quite passively people come mm-hmm. to me and i help them get a watch mm-hmm. it's not yeah. i'm not um it, it's, it's not even you know i wouldn't even class it as a job i wouldn't even say it's a side mm-hmm. hustle really it's something that i do because i enjoy it yeah. um you know i work behind a desk in an office day to day and this is just something quite cool where i get to mess with a lot of watches mm-hmm. and uh, it also kind of spurs on my collecting journey as well a bit yeah. and um give me the experience to work on my own watches as well which yeah. when start collecting all the watches mm-hmm. uh particularly the kinetics which i've got right into then yeah. uh, you need to know a little bit about what you're doing on the tools yeah changing out capacitors and all that kind of stuff yeah i've done four this morning so did you yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I love them and they're, they're yeah. definitely underappreciated and it's just another thing that i just kind of stumbled across mm-hmm through the modding where a few people said, you know, can you mod a kinetic? And there's not many options in terms no. of parts for them, but at the bare minimum I can do, you know, the, get them going again for, mm-hmm. for sure. And, and, you know, rebrush the bracelets and things like that. And then obviously I've ended up kind of falling for them really. And now I've yeah. got um, enough that it keeps me busy keeping them all charged up. Yeah. Now they are cool movements as well. We, me and AJ and um, Dev Martin uh, spoke about them in Seiko episode part two, where we spoke about um, the effectively the emergence of quartz technology and, you know, and that's halfway through. Yeah. So, you know, it is a funky element of, you know, that mix of mechanical and, and, and quartz really is. It's really cool. Um, in terms of watch modding now, um advice for someone who may want to get into it so be this where uh, and i'm showing a watch to you because i can and not everyone else is but i'm just showing um joe a uh, atp from 1939 um i've gone into the back of this and i've basically messed around with the regulation on it you know what i mean to kind of like mm-hmm. dial it in a little bit more because i decided to go on google and learn how to do that you know mm-hmm. i've got some very basic and rudimentary tools like a case back opener i've got you know silicon grease and all that kind of stuff to it aid in this thing to be a little bit more mm-hmm. uh i want to say waterproof but 
it's a lie isn't it you know let's be honest mm-hmm. it's probably steam proof at this point um but you, you know what i mean like the point to make it yeah. you know more usable um what advice in terms of where 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 would you send people to to you know learn how to do this if they want to start because i know there's a lot of people that i've met in my collecting journey just in the wider watch fam and they all kind of go absolutely love watches i just want to learn how to take them apart you know what mm-hmm. i mean even if it's just they're going to take it apart and destroy it just to understand how it all goes together or take it apart to actually you know potentially make something themselves and have something where they can go oh, i did that mm-hmm. um I'd say I definitely learned a lot from uh, Mark at Long Island Watch. Um, mm-hmm. His, uh, you know, Watch and Learn series is is amazing, and it's good for things outside of modern as well. But you just kind of that's a really good foundation for for mm-hmm. all all things watches, and mm-hmm. it's the kind of basics where you can hold a conversation really, and he, you know, all the different types of movement and all different types of complication, as well as he's gone through a some things about modding and changing bezels and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, loom shot, which a lot of people have seen um, fantastic modder. I think that he really shows off attention to detail and cleanliness, which are both mm-hmm. things that are really important. And um, mm-hmm. it's just some kind of tips and tricks, really. Everyone has their own methods and that it's important that when people get started, that they don't get too disheartened because mm-hmm you might try someone's method that you've seen on YouTube and, and you think, well, it works so easy for them. Everyone always struggles with putting on a second hand. I've been blessed that I've always found it quite easy, but I I'm, I am definitely a minority. A lot of people don't, mm-hmm. but you know, there, there's about 10 different methods I could reel up off the top of my head, but you've got to find the one that, yeah. that works for you really. And um, yeah, just trial and error. If you can get some yeah. practice parts are always good. I've yeah, got I've heard like a box practice. of hands. Yeah. For sure. Before you dive in. Yeah. How, how much in terms of kit and equipment now take away, you know, effectively an eBay search for broken watches to take apart and learn, but actual kit and equipment now, um, what kind of kit would people have to buy? You know, mm-hmm. what are we looking at? And, and is there any part? So I've watched an analysis because I've watched an episode of the risk, watch revival and he's another Great. guy he's fantastic channel. i just find him he's Love like it. asmr he's like asmr for watches he's, i just have him on in the background when i've got nothing so else that i want to do and i just watch or listen to this bloke take watches apart but he did a really good episode where he was talking about you know the kind of kit and equipment that he bought that got him into it and he gave some advice where because this is it right you know watches can be thousands of pounds the kit and equipment to build them and maintain them can also be hundreds or even thousands of pounds and he did put out in a good episode which again i'll put in the show notes as well but it's where you can effectively save a little bit of money on certain mm-hmm. elements of your kit is there any bits in your experience now where you would tell people that is being really good for you that you've bought or you know is there particularly a brands that you would steer people to for their equipment i would say that um channels like Watch revival um most of he's a professional and he's also mm-hmm. a watchmaker and mm-hmm. the key is most modders aren't watchmakers mm-hmm. uh, but all pretty much all watchmakers could do modding now yeah. to do watchmaking you need the right kit and they're all you know got Bergeon uh, tools and yeah. we all know that then they don't come cheap no nope. uh, <laughs> they are they are good and yeah. they are worth worth it if it's a full-time thing if it's your job um 
day to day though i would say that you're not going to do that for modding you're not going to spend you know thousands of pounds on tools mm -hmm. for modding but what you can do is just stay off the absolute cheapest stuff mm -hmm. but at the same time whatever you're going to get is probably going to be off brand non brand yeah. you know direct from cousins uk or from china yeah. which is fine but i would say if you know, you look at crystal presses you can buy crystal press for 10 pounds you can buy a crystal press for 20, 30. You can buy some for 50 and then you can buy some for a thousand pounds. The 50 pound ones are good because they last. I, I found the first one I bought was 20 pound and the second crystal I put in the crystal press just literally obliterated in my hands. Mm -hmm. So that was a waste of 20 pounds. So I should yeah. have just bought the 50 pound one in the beginning. Yeah. So if you can, what I'm trying to say is if you can kind of stump up a little bit for some mid range stuff, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, even still at the lower end, but kind of mid range, not not scraping the barrel, then you're gonna have some tools that are gonna at least last year. Yeah, uh, I've put and you know hundreds of crystals through my uh, mm -hmm. crystal press, and I should have bought that one the whole yeah. time. And I've even bought another one ready to replace yeah. that one when it yeah. when it breaks, and it will do at some point because it's still not a thousand pound Swiss mm -hmm. press, but it does the job. So yeah, yeah just, but that's uh, the point, isn't it? It's it's by correctly and be uh, i spoke about this you know before we came on talk about being an informed consumer again yeah it's being an informed consumer buy what you need to buy and buy slightly better because it will last you longer right you know it's For it's sure. no no different than the argument that i had earlier with the blank pan 50 whatever they want to call it you know buy buy correctly and you won't have to replace it in five years time for example um but yeah i've used cousins before i've bought a lot of um you know strap changing tools i've bought some um you know bracelet tweezers for spring bar tweezers i buy my spring bars from cousins as well so they're i'll great. put that into the yeah they are great and they deliver really quickly as well which is really good so i will um i'll put them into the show notes guys um I, if i were you i would just go directly to joe and ask him if there's any questions about any particular pieces uh or bits of equipment to buy because he does this and I do not. I am just a enthusiastic amateur when it comes to taking apart <laughs> watches. Um, Joe, um, before we move on, uh, is there anything that you want to add about Seiko modding and what you uh, provide under Seiko um, before we move on to where people can find you, as it were, on social media? I think we've covered most bases, really, mm -hmm. but I'm always up for at least a conversation. Yeah. Um, I like to talk about mods and i like to talk about potential with no kind of obligation or commitment mm -hmm. because it's just quite good to explore um ideas and possibilities and most of the time that will um you know kind of evolve into a build at some point but mm -hmm. you know if somebody says right well thanks very much but i can't afford it right now that that's fine i'm not the kind of pushy kind of person mm -hmm. i like to talk about watches i like to talk about mods yeah. so uh you know my, my message inbox is always open drop me a line yeah, yeah cool uh so before we move on to where people can drop your line um i've got a question it's a final one we talk about obviously uh watch modding we spoke about your collection we spoke about how you are uh, basically a watch pest is there any watches on your horizon that you wish uh, you are looking at in terms of broadening your own collection in terms of brands or models um that we've you know you know haven't discussed well there's always a chance that i'll just buy something that i already own because i've got that, <laughs> that terrible affliction but um you know i i, I bought a holton and then i ended up with another one within a week um mm -hmm. because it, it, i think it's just that's the way the universe throws watches at me 
Um, but I'm not sure really is the answer to that. I mm-hmm. think that I'm always on the lookout for. I my tastes have definitely moved towards the military side, and that has come off mm-hmm. the back of modding because um, a couple of people that I built mods for also had some military watches. Yep, and they, you know, one of them gave me the chance. He said, "I've just bought this Pulsar G10." Yep, and he said, "I can probably get you one." Because the guy had he had two. Do you want me to give him a text? And then before you know it, there you go. Well, got it one, is got one there exactly. I yeah. absolutely love it. And before you know it, I was driving. You know, twenty minutes away. It was it was dark. I knocked on this door and and I bought this this, <laughs> this G10 through a little yeah. little hooker. I didn't didn't pay any tax on it either. And um, it kind of snowballed from there. So that's definitely my taste. So, what do you think of them? G10s. Yeah. I think yep. that they are obviously a product of some cost saving compared mm-hmm. to the CWCs and the procedures and all those things. But at the same time, it's probably the most accurate quartz watch in my collection. Really? Um, and I know that that can vary from movement to movement, but I can mm-hmm. only speak for my own one. And the loom's great. The so loom is great. The, these things works, do glow like yeah. a motherfucker. Um, they glow like Chernobyl in Meltdown. Exactly. So it it does everything that you know. Bearing in mind, mine's super accurate. The loom's really mm-hmm. good. It's light on the wrist, and I'd say that they take a bit more abuse than you might think, based on like if you saw the size of the crown and yeah, they seem like a kind of cheap little watch, but they actually are quite quite strong. Yeah, I um, I'll have to s- yeah, I'll have to send you a couple of photos because um people. Um, especially, I mean, I don't know if you know this, I don't know how far back into the depths of the history of the Zulu Time podcast you've gone in or what episodes you've really listened to. And, and that's fine. I'm not about to interrogate you on that. But um, when we were talking about modern issued watches, when we got to the early 2000s, we brought in the Pulsar because I did a history section, right? I did a mm-hmm. decade by decade history, looked at Army, Navy and Air Force and picked out some prominent watches and spoke about them, right? But we talk about how these things, you know, it's got a snapback case back, right? And it basically says water resistant, which basically means nothing in terms of modern, you <laughs> yeah. know, watchmaking. And that's fine. But like you said, you know, there's photos of uh, British Army soldiers, like up to their chest in irrigation ditches in Afghanistan, getting shot at under contact with these things on their wrist. And like I said, you know, even with the cost saving as you said um build quality of these things they survived you know um mark over at um jana watch he's got a few of these throughout his career um and stuff like that and you know he wore them and uh when he went on tour he you know and he did some you know pretty interesting things a lot more interesting than i've ever done and um you know, he was saying how, you know, they just got abused and battered and kept on going. You know what I mean? Um, even the wrist of today, you know, when I spoke to Ben, he was saying how these are issued to the to the boats, to the actual uh, vessels themselves, and they'd go through crews, you know, and, you know, they're just dinged up, like, massively, you know. Um, but it's interesting. What I like about these pulsars is, like you said, they wear really well because they're thin, but also there's no other pulsar with this case. That's exactly what I was about to say. It's exactly yeah. why I love. I've got a, a RAF Gen Two, yeah. which is one of my favourite watches, mm-hmm. and I think the case on it um, is is absolutely superb. The lines yeah. and the shape, and they didn't do. People think that they did because they do. Obviously, the military style ones that you can buy on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, yeah. 
but they're more like the Gen 1 and yeah. kind of the central hand always ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, those Gen 2s, I think, are really underrated. Yeah. Um, and the, the Seiko Gen 2, which is not underrated, it's probably uh, at the, the current prices is overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, they they didn't really do a civilian version. They did some no. that were available to civilians with no numbers on, yeah. but they were designed for, and that that's the, the kind of difference, isn't it? And that's yeah. why I think those particular ones stand out to me yeah. um it's really cool watches because they didn't adapt an off-the-shelf model yeah yeah and and also like i said you know in the wider conversation for our topic tonight you know pulsar is a subsidiary of seiko so it shows you sure. that they had the manufacturing behind the powerhouse that is seiko to make these watches you know even with the pulsar gen 2 the uh, case is completely proprietary to itself you know and I, I i like it for that you know again it's funny the pulsars in my experience in the military have um almost a polarizing opinion should we say like some guys really like them and some guys really don't you know i mean people still appreciate them like if you've got an issued watch you kind of know that this person's effectively managed to get one for whatever reason to get mm-hmm. one um and they for want of a better expression, at least appreciate it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also know a gentleman who um was issued a chronograph in training, flight training for the for the navy, and absolutely fucking hated it. Like he said, it just didn't wear very well on his wrist. He said he knocked it off the cockpit all the time and all that kind of stuff. He just didn't get on with it, which is really, mm-hmm. you know, it just shows you, doesn't it? Again, it's down to personality in an environment that we put these things through. You know, they don't suit everyone, right? But he still appreciated the fact that he was issued a chronograph, you know, mm-hmm. throughout his his flight training, which is quite cool, you know. But I I do like those watches. I think they're fun, you know. The um, the but... Gen One was a bit of a flop, wasn't it? So yes, it that was. kind of set a few people mm-hmm. on the uh, on the warpath against yeah. Pulsar. I think they were lucky to get the the contract again. Yes, uh, and and even with the G10s, like you know, you mentioned the small crown. You know, people said that they they've managed to pop the crowns on them and all that kind of stuff, and I'm sure they have. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt mm. it because there's no crown guards on it. But like, I've never seen one with a popped crown guard. Never. No. I mean, admittedly, I'm in a job that meant that I was never up to my chest in water, you know, doing what they were doing. Um, but you know, my going off my experience with with in the wider military and meeting people who have had these things, like they've never broken one. You know, mm-hmm. I've seen some of them have got like proper gouges down the crystal as well, like proper deep yeah. gouges. And that's the argument for mineral over sapphire every day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's things like that. It, uh, you know, again, it goes back to it. In the military uh, context, they are built as tools, right? They're not really built for watch aficionados and watch collectors like us. However, that being said, obviously the uh, trend at the moment with military watches means that people are after them. Um, I do find it funny how much people are willing to pay for uh, pulsars on, on eBay or on Facebook, to be fair. Um, Crazy. Given given how much I know that the, what the military buy them in for, mm-hmm. um, which we won't mention on the podcast because it will get people upset, but I will tell you that is considerably less than what people pay for them online. And, and, and I'm sure there are, you know, I'm sure that's down to supply and demand. And I'm also sure that people just know that's just down to how it works. The military buy equipment at a set rate, you know. That's it. It makes it, they are exclusive though, aren't they? I mean, obviously mm. you um, have probably had the opportunity to purchase them new at work. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
you know, I, I'm not in the military, but I am really into military watches. So I don't speak for everybody that collects them outside for the military, but I, I don't know. There's just something about them that has this kind of exclusivity in a different way to a, you know, a Rolex mm-hmm. or a Patek or, or something yeah. that, and also the fact that they're, they're designed for a purpose yeah. and, you know, we're talking for a lot of these watches, especially the pilots one, for death situations, mm-hmm. they are designed to do a very important job, mm-hmm. you know, with very important stakes. And there's, there's a lot to be, you know, kind of admired for that, that, mm-hmm. you know, the RAF would go to Pulsar and, and yeah. ask for something that at one point, I don't know if it's still the case now, but would have been a very important tool for a pilot. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure. That's I'm, I'm sure it's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and the thing is, it's not just pilots, like air crew in general. Like, mm-hmm. so my first unit, again, I've probably mentioned this in the past, I'm probably going to bore some of my audience again, but my first unit was a tri-service unit and we were on uh, five squadrons. So you can Google this, five squadron flew um, a particular aircraft, which meant that it was a multi-crew air crew, um, you know, platform uh, for you know, effectively imagery, right? Um, really fun squadron. And I know we all look back in the military, we all look back on some of our first units as like romantic sized and say, you know, it's the best unit we've ever been into. But I can genuinely say I've never been on the unit like that again. Like mm-hmm. I've had some great times in the army, but I can fundamentally say that that squadron was phenomenal, right? But what's really cool and what's interesting is the air crew. If you were an air crew NCO, so rear crew, you got these. So you got the, G- the G10, Mm-hmm. But if you're a pilot, you got the chronograph. So I don't know if that, you know, I mean, if that was in their job spec necessary, or if it was just down to what the th- what you could pull out of the Thorman's like, you mm-hmm. know, shelves. But it was interesting to see that there was a slight deviation between maybe in terms of what timing was made necessary, you know. And I've also been on units where, you know, the air crew, rear crew, so the door gunners and the observers also had the chronographs, you know. And it's it's been interesting to see. But what's really fun when you speak to the air crew, I don't know if it's just because watches are more prevalent in that environment but they all love them because they go i've got an issued watch and that's really cool you know maybe they look at it and go oh well i was issued it because of my job and it has this other connotation to it and maybe because you know watches of i would say without stereotyping it are a bigger thing in the world of aviation and the world of diving compared to you know your your run-of-the-mill you know i guess soldier for one of their expression you know but it's interesting to see where these uh mementos or these pieces of equipment fit within the hierarchy of needs i guess within those roles um so yeah it's, it's just interesting isn't it you know well i yeah i might be wrong you, you'll definitely be able to answer this question but out of all the kind of kit that you amass through through your, your career yeah. most of it is going to wear out yeah. whether it be boots or you know, mm-hmm. so you're not really unless you really want to put them on the shelf you're not going to have your first pair of boots um for, for, <laughs> for you know for 20 years oh yeah i don't know how i know they're pretty robust sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. It, if you look after the watch that will be the potentially the thing that you can yeah you know retire with whereas yeah, yeah. yeah you know your first i don't know shirt or you know belt or something you're gonna um you know wear it out eventually yeah, I yeah. Exactly that, you know, and uh, what I find really funny, um, so I've got, I'll leave off with the military with, um, uh, well, I've got one anecdotal story for a vintage one with G10, which you'll like, and then I'll tell you, and it came from a, a family friend, uh, but it's funny when you talk about these issued watches, everyone that I've met of a certain generation 
like you said, they're never given back. You know, like you said, you know, it seems that people, when they leave, the things that they keep from their uniform, for want of better expression, tend to be very personal items. It tends to be stable belts and berries. And these, you know, rightly or wrongly, the G10 doesn't always go back. You know, um, how they managed to get that, I don't know. You know, we're not going to confirm or deny that uh, on, on, on the recording, but, you know, we know it happens. You know, it's one of those. Um, but you're like this, so... Do you remember the Smiths W10? Yes. Yes. So for those who don't know and you haven't gone back in my archives of all these episodes and you've just joined us in the Zulu Time podcast this evening, the Smiths W10 was the last fully made British issued watch to the British military writ large. Okay. This is before we outsourced to other companies, Rolex, Amiga, Seiko, Pulsar, CWC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is a very cool watch. I've owned one in the past. It is a very nice watch. The movements are apparently a joy to work on. I have no idea, having never done it. Um, and they were based off a Jaeger Lacoutre caliber, which is quite cool. Um, what you're like, if you've never seen the inside of one, is as a obviously as a watch modder, um, is the fact that the bridges are all frosted, the movements frosted, and the finishing is a very British finishing compared to like Cote de Genève that we have seen and Geneva striping that we've seen on other mechanical watches mm -hmm. um but a good family friend of ours um he actually unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago so he was he finished up as a major in the, in the british army he was an infanteer through and through he joined the um king's own scottish borderers so that tells you how okay. old this guy okay. is right and he joined up man and boy is what they would say so he joined up as a junior leader so he literally joined in the army at like 15 and a half back when you could and he went all the way through, got to RSM of the King's Own Scottish Borderers, late entry commissioned, and then obviously ended up as a major, right? And then retired, had a great life in Cyprus. And I met him as a retiree family friend of my father's. And he told me this story when he found out that I started collecting military watches. When he was the RSM, he said that he used to go around, obviously, with his fuck-off stick, as the uh, RSMs tend to do in barracks and do RSME things, which would be shouting at people, telling them to get off the grass and all that standard stuff. He used to pull up junior officers, so lieutenants and second lieutenants, who had issued watches. He would stop them on the barracks and he would make them hand over the watches to him. Because in his eyes, he said that a junior officer could afford his own watch. And an issued watch is for the men. So he would take that issued uh, Smith's W10 off said second lieutenant fucknuts. And then he would go and give it to the nearest non-commissioned or private soldier in the regiment that he first came across. Because he said that they were more deserving of a watch because they couldn't afford one. And that's what, why issued watches were really important. He went because they were for the men. He goes, watches are expensive. And this is why we issued them. Fair enough. That I... Uh... I didn't even consider that. Obviously, um, it makes sense. It's um, they are supposed to be mm. there to do a job, and I yeah. guess the, those guys need to know what time to be out of bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like you said, you know, more, more. I guess military. When you think of the hardcore stuff, you know, you know, they miss a, you know, a H hour for want of that expression. You know, they don't go over the top for another expression or whatever. You know, they don't put their military maneuvers in correctly then everything else in the plan will fail. You know, don't get me wrong, there will be officers who have issued watches. And it's funny now, we look at the dichotomy of who gets the issued watches now. 
it's your senior soldiers and it's your officers in my mm -hmm. experience who have them whereas like you said back in the 60s it was the exact opposite which is quite funny yeah. you know so yeah, i thought you'd like that as a military story um really cool joe i but where can people find you uh in terms of social media in order to talk all things seiko watch modding to pick your brains out of watch watches in general or just basically compare watches in their own collection everything i do i do it on instagram keep it okay. simple i'm trying to have these like five channels um so yeah it's it's instagram.com slash say coded so that's s-e-i-k-o-d-e-d -E -E and uh yeah you'll find me on there and uh, normally posting some random watch that i've been working on or something like that or something from my own collection and yep. um few elliot browns these days thrown in between got, got the <laughs> i am not so. even i'm not even sorry i'm really glad that you're a member of the elliot brown watch fam and you're also a uh member of the elliot brown uh anonymous facebook group as as we know well know uh, guys uh joe is really modest the last thing that he forgot to mention and it's a really good article is he wrote an article about the tudor fxd and it's on uh, the recon team watch blog i'm going to put a link into it into the show notes go read his opinion on that release and i'd like to just say joe that i actually shared your opinion and like i said if you missed it in episode 82 when that uh, goes live obviously at the time of this recording and in this episode it is live um you'll uh, enjoy my reaction to that release as well um Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on to obviously today's show and giving up your evening. Um, before we move on to the final bit, which is the closing notes, is there anything else you would like to say? Keep it brief, but I will say to yep. you, we need to do this again because one, yep. we've got plenty to cover on, mm -hmm. on military watches. We could probably talk about another hour on Pulsars yep. alone. And also, um, I think we could probably catch up on Cyprus because I used to live there for a bit as well. So Wonderful. Um, there's there's a little uh, yeah, connection yeah. that I'm sure we can explore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, well, very quickly. What what years were you there? Um, late nineties. But okay. my family are all from Cyprus, so uh, okay. yeah, I've still got loads of family there, and awesome. It's a cool place. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so I was there. So I've been there twice. Uh, well, yeah, twice growing up. So I was actually there initially in 1997 to uh, 1999. And then we moved back in 2005. But yeah, me and you will have a chat about Cyprus off the air because no one else really cares and wants to know about that. <laughs> um, other than the fact that, you know, once a year, um, the Zulu time uh, at Flash Timely Moments headquarters starts putting up nice sunshine photos of his watches uh, when I go over there. <laughs> um, as you are my guest, uh, this evening what is your closing note for the audience um, it's a bit of an interesting one I'm going to um, leave it up to the audience to, to draw their own opinions but it's definitely a subject that's hooked me in a lot recently so uh, it's in particular it's a podcast that you'll mm -hmm. find I think in all the usual places but um, I tend to watch it on YouTube because they do post video it's called Weaponized and it's Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp who are two uh, investigative journalists and mm -hmm. they are currently digging very deep into this whole phenomenon of UAPs, uh, particularly in America. Um, yep. You might have seen the congressional hearings and these two guys, if you, if you watch the congressional hearings with those three witnesses that were kind of in, in the dock talking to the congressman, these two guys were actually sat behind them. So uh, they're, they're very much involved in the, um, in this kind of unraveling of what's going on above the skies in America, so uh, yeah. and around the world, but particularly in America, so I get hooked into that whenever there's a new episode because uh, I'm very fascinated to uh, find out where all these weird, uh, weird ships and and things are coming mm -hmm. from, whether they're uh, black projects or 
mm-hmm. from somewhere else. So we'll see. Interesting. Right, guys, go check that out. I will add that into the show notes. Mine is not as interesting, okay? Mine is not, uh, and it's not on YouTube. Um, so I've got two. I've got uh, Race Across the World, the celebrity edition. Um, basically, Race Across the World has continued. Uh, they've now thrown on some what I like to call C-list and B-list celebrities who clearly need some money, uh, and we get to laugh at them trying to get across the world. Um, I like this kind of TV for different reasons. Uh, firstly, I like laughing at celebrities who are a bit shit. Um, want a better expression, so you get a laugh out of that. But I actually genuinely like the idea of this race across the world. I think the idea of dropping someone at a start location, giving them X amount of money, as well as you know a little bit of help to turn around and say, right, get to point from point A to point B, however you choose to get there. I just think it's a really cool, um, you know, uh, concept of a TV show. And a race so yeah go check that out uh it's funnier because it's celebrities right so you know they've just got a little bit of a slightly out of some of them anyway have got a little bit of a slight out of touch kind of uh point of view shall we say to the real world and uh how to manage your money to get from point a to point b because point a is and point b are quite fucking far away from each other shall we say so it's interesting um if that's not your bag guys um and you want something a little bit more military a little bit more serious i'm halfway through it at the moment um and it's another audio book because that tends to be what i tend to be spouting for you guys at the moment but it's called jack doors okay so it's by ken follett so ken follett is famous he's a bit of a historian kind of writer very similar to um your bernard cornwalls and all of that kind of stuff so all of his books are fiction uh pretty much, but based on historical fact and based around, a, again, a concept that actually happened or an event that actually happened. Jack Dawes um, is based around the Special Operations Executive missions uh, that obviously parachuted agents and spies and double agents into Europe um, in the build-up to the D-Day landings. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say. Um I'm particularly enjoying enjoying the audiobook because the narrator is very good. She brings it alive and the way she reads the book also helps because of the story and who the characters are. So if you're into reading, obviously go read it. But if you're not, I really implore you to um, get the audiobook because the I think they've done a very clever narrator to match for this book. And I just think it helps. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. Go and enjoy it. Um, it is really good really good and i think because it's leveled in history and the guy's got such an attention to detail it just brings this fictitious raid for want of a better example uh to life so yeah go check that out uh joe again thank you very much for coming on the podcast and giving up your evening uh to talk everything watches with me guys i hope you enjoyed it please reach out to joe for all of your seiko and modern questions or maybe even buy a seiko or mod you know and if you don't already and if you also already have a uh, Seiko Shogun, please get involved with his hashtag because he needs help. Uh, I can't help you there, bro, because I do not have a Seiko Shogun. However, I'm more than happy to talk about all things Cyprus, military watches and Seiko with you in future. I will definitely get you back onto the show because I know for a fact that um, Justin uh, at the Recon Watch blog would love to have an episode where you're on on as well. So we will coordinate that uh, before the end of the year. But anyway, guys, uh, until then, 
look forward to my next episode. I've got a plan into November, just so you're aware, we're going to do a remembrance-based episode, which will focus on military watches and remembrance. Um, And then we should be getting, and I keep on pushing it back, and I keep on promising you this, but it is in the works. Um, I've just had a little bit busy period of work. Uh, We should be getting Elliot Brown on before the end of the year to talk about the Beachmaster. So you can hear about the Beachmaster and all things Elliot Brown from Elliot Brown and not just me. And then we're going to close out this year, okay, guys, with a standard Christmas episode where we talk about things to buy people in the watch fam and all that kind of standard stuff. But yes, that's what is going to be happening for the Zulu Time podcast until the end of the year. Final note, I just want to shout out very, very quickly to uh, Matt over at Citadel Taylor's he has just run me a new Zulu time podcast patch so um Joe because you're a guest on the show mate you will be getting a Zulu time slash timely moments patch coming to you it will glow in the dark please make it glow in the dark by using a UV torch um but I need to wait for them to come in because this is a new order um you will be one of the first people to get one of the new badges so I hope you look forward to that but yes guys until then Take care and we'll catch you in the next episode.